Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. I'll try not to take this as a hint. Somebody left for me a little box that says, the Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. <laughs> Which is entirely true. But uh, I'm taking it for granted that someone was kind enough to find that in our yard sale and leave it for me for my office, which would really look nice. But uh, hopefully not a hint as to something that they found wrong with my sermons. Uh, well, we are in Missions Month at High Lawn, and one of the things that we'd like to take a look at is what missions are. What is behind missions? Why do we do what we do? <clears throat> Excuse me, is there a definition that we can put with it? <clears throat> and this is going to be one of those sermons. I know a lot of you take uh, pictures of the, the slides that come up. This is going to be one of those to do that with. But what we're talking about today is the necessity of the demonstration of the love of God. This is how the Christian conversation begins. Now, we've talked before about how the church makes a difference in a fallen world, and that's by developing relationships with one another, basically winning one heart at a time. We are not called to create nations. We are not called to build empires. What we are called to do is to rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from Sin and the grave, one heart at a time, building relationships, showing people that God's love makes a difference. And through that demonstration, we break through the heart of stone. Through that demonstration, we melt down the resistance. And through that demonstration, that spark ignites. The Holy Spirit gets a window of conversation. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the, the Word of God. Why do you believe what you believe? How is it that you're different than everybody else? When the world is falling apart and you're still safe, secure, and, and happy acting, what makes you different? What gives you peace? Why do you have that stupid looking smile on your face when everything's coming apart? Why? I'd, I'd love to, I'm glad you asked. That's our window of opportunity. But it begins by demonstrating God's love. So, as we've talked about several times, the foundation of who we are and what we do are based on three simple, uh, simple sentences spoken by our Savior. The first two are a quote that he gives us from the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. In other words, love God with everything that you are first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. As the, as, as the capstone of everything that we are, that everything else balances into place. The second, like unto it, love your neighbor as? And the one that he gave us, the great commandment that he gave us during the, the, the last lesson that he would give with his disciples in his earthly ministry, love one another as I have loved you. So, if you would, take out your copy of God's Word with me this morning and turn to the Gospel according to St. Luke. Chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, 
This is one of the cases where Jesus himself is being pressed. The Pharisees and the keepers of the law of the time are coming up to him and trying to trip him up, trying to to, uh, sabotage his ministry by getting him uh, intellectually challenged as they think that our, our Savior doesn't know his Bible. We'll see how that pans out. Starting with verse 25, we read, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to take the focus off of the Savior. He wanted to show how smart he was. So he asks this question, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. and They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, I want you to, to notice this, and I know I've preached on this before, but the two people whose job it was to do something did not. But this person who was considered subhuman in Israel is the person that takes up the care. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. That's two years worth of basic labor wages. Understand this. This is not a small act of mercy. This is a lavish compassion charity. Charity in the old English meaning a sacrificial love. He gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, that last sentence is our challenge. That last sentence is our challenge. How many of us would give away two years worth of regular wages to pay someone's medical bills? How many of us would stop in the middle of a rough neighborhood to snatch somebody from the jaws of death. This is the challenge that our Savior leaves to us. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Before we go any further with how we demonstrate love, I want to give you a little bit of a warning about a trap. Barna, in his services, um, the Barna Group, as you know, are a, a research outfit tasked with, among other things, trying to figure out the way that the church is impacting the culture today. 
And one of the things that we've been seeing in our culture is a drift away from identifying as Christian. Now, it used to be not too long ago, even a decade ago, that just being here within this community, if you at one time or another went to a church, or if you had a church-going family, even if you didn't attend yourself, you would identify as Christian anyway. <coughs> that has changed. And it's changed drastically. It's changed drastically to the point that if you did a survey, a census survey here, in our zip code, within a five-block radius of a five-mile radius of this church, you would find out that eight out of every ten citizens do not identify as partaking in any religious preference. Now think about that for a second. Anytime that you go to Kroger's, anytime that you go to Walmart, of a gathering of ten people, eight of them aren't going to church anywhere. And Barna's research found out that one of the greatest reasons wasn't because they don't believe in the book of Genesis, wasn't because they think of the miracles as overly flamboyant, it wasn't any of the intellectual challenges, it's because during their lives they were hurt by their church. Or they knew someone that was hurt by their church. Hypocrisy. They don't believe what they preach, they don't actually do what they say that they're called to do, and they treat others like crap. Poisoning the message of the local church are people going in Christ's name, taking his name in vain, not because of their language, but because of their ambassadorship. Making vain, making worthless the name of Christ by not demonstrating Christ. Ask any waitress and they'll tell you that the worst time, the worst shift that they could possibly get through the course of the week is when? Sunday! The worst tips, the greatest complaints, and the most pulling out of hair by any manager happens from the after-church crowd. You find this... Uh, when did it ever become okay for the people of the local church not to act like it? This is why we believe in something called a regenerate church membership. The people who make the decisions of the church better be in the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? And we should act like it. A regenerate Christian should act like it. You know what? The Bible calls a Christian that says, when, when Jesus says, go and do likewise, do you know what the Bible would call a Christian like that? Normal! We would think of it as extraordinary. But what Jesus is talking about is the general expectation on all of us to be holy as he is. Holy. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But the priests, let's talk about the priests because it was actually the priest's job to do what the, the Samaritan ended up doing. Now, the priest is a descendant of Aaron. Not every Levite is a priest, but every priest is a Levite. They're all sons and daughters, descendants of, of Aaron, back from the Old Testament. They were called to instruct the people in the Torah to lead temple worship. Uh, they were also supposed to provide in their job description mercy for the traveler, justice for the persecuted, and help for the injured. Now, this priest, walking through the roof neighborhood, did what? Any of those things? None of those things, but this was their job. This is what they supposedly believed and taught. The Levite. The Levite is a member of a tribe set apart for holy service. 
They are the deacons. They are the caretakers. They are the, the worshipers, the core masters. They are guardians and the workers of the temples. They are the distributors of charitable supply to the poor. They are the literal uh, sword-carrying defenders of the poor and the vulnerable. Yet what did he do? He passed them by. So it was the Samaritan, the half-breed, the deserter of Israel, the person who was looked on, the marginalized. He was the one who saw the duty and took it up. The person of the other denomination, the person of the other race, the person who didn't sound like us, who didn't act like us, who didn't necessarily have the same accent as us, it was that person that was more of a Christian than the Christians were Christians. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, it's a rebuke against those who should, who should be the people that they're called to be. Proverbs, the, the hypocrite, with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the, the righteous will be delivered. Now what Solomon is talking about here is interesting because the Old Testament word for hypocrite, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I'm sure somebody will laugh at my attempt, literally means to be godless, to be irreligious, to be soiled. The root word of it means that you're wearing clothing that is visibly stained. Okay, so you're putting on a set of priestly garments trying to say that you are a pious person, but there's a giant black splotch on it proving that you are not. A, a blood stain rendering you unclean. The Greek word that Jesus is, is written down in the New Testament actually means to be an actor on a stage, to be assuming a role, playing a character, putting on one face while having another real face underneath, the way that the Greeks used to have plays, those little terracotta masks that they would wear to show uh, the facial expressions of the person they were supposed to be instead of the person that they really are. What Jesus is literally calling them is a mask wearer. And then he gives us this instruction. This is how Jesus describes how a spiritual hypocrite is. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Not, not that you shouldn't be a witness but that you shouldn't make a show of yourself. He talks about people who are fasting, who go out of their way to make themselves look dreary, look at the suffering that I'm going through and all of that. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven because all you were trying to do is get yourself to be worshipped for the pious person that you are. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Oh, look how much money I gave. Look what a good boy I am. I, that kind of thing. Now, in this church, we were discipled years ago by a very, uh, very wise pastor not to get a donated by plaque on every pew because in, who ends up being worshipped in that? Keeney did a good thing. Smart man. Glad that he had an example that I could go by. 
When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, where they pray standing in synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Be on the lookout also. I'm glad that we have a godly worship leader. Because there are many others that try to get themselves worshipped in the place of God. Who try to make the act of contributing love, reflecting love to God, into a show for themselves. To be the idol in place of the Holy One. And when people see that, people see that. If you have an inauthentic spiritual life before someone else, they're going to pick up on it. That's what Barna discovered. So Jesus' description of what hypocrisy is, what poisons our missions, is in a word pride, self-worship. Disguising sin, playing the part of the godly. Making your worship or your acts of service into a show for yourself instead of pointing to God. Working for the praise of others instead of the, the blessing of the Holy One. Turning the self into an object of worship alongside or in the place of God. Whoever claims to be... The Apostle John gives this rebuke too. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God who they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and their sisters. So hypocrisy is also self-promotion. It delves in competition within the body. Oh, I can make a pie better than her. You've seen the types. The types who want to turn church into an us versus them Instead of an all of us together, one family under God. Many last names, but one body. One family called by His blood. Feigned love when festering hatred. Holding a grudge, in other words. Factionalized in the place of unity. Messengers of gossip instead of reconciliation. I remember uh, in some churches, I won't mention any names, but in some churches... You could, if you wanted to get an announcement out really quickly and make sure everybody knew about it, walk past the kitchen and whisper. And then all of a sudden, everybody knows. James goes on. Do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what? It says, this is another form of hypocrisy we're pointing out here. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks into a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Hypocrisy is self-deception. It's spirituality without transformation. It is worship without any sense of devotion. It's an interactive concert in this setting person comes into the waters of baptism, a dry sinner, they come out a, a wet sinner. There's no change of the heart. It's being a part of the community without pitching in to do any of the work. It's a refusal to self-examine and to rededicate when we know that there's a flaw. As we talked about uh, last Sunday with communion, that's a time when we come in, we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ, and we come before Him asking 
for His help in helping us to be more like Him. It's placing the comfort of the self before the love of God. Oh, I can't go out to church today. It's too cold. It's too windy. It's too rainy. How many flakes of snow does it take to call off a church service anyway? Placing the comfort of yourself before God, who we're called to love above everything, and expecting everything from everybody else while doing nothing ourselves. That's what James is talking about. This letter to Timothy, I'll wrap up with Paul. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. There was too much in here to underline. So just hang with me. Write this down in the flyleaf of your Bible. If you want a good definition of hypocrisy as it comes up within the body, it's given to us in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Underline that in your copy of God's Word. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Acting religious, claiming to be religious, wearing the badge of I go to such and such church, I'm a deacon, I'm a pastor, I'm an elder, I'm a whatever you want to call it, an officer of some time, and yet playing the part while you're in the sanctuary, living like the devil out of it. This destroys the testimony of the local church, barring our hands from being able to reach out to those that we've been called to save. Have nothing to do with such people. A church without discipline is not a church. A church without a sense of discipline to herself is not a church. Hypocrisy to Paul is self-sovereignty, is denying God's authority. Religion without accountability. The church must take care of her own. Rationalization and the normalizing of sin within the believer and within the society. Dragging in to the church what should be left outside of the church. Not dusting off your feet before you come in the door. Denying the call of God to be something greater. He created you. He knows what's best for you. He designed you with a purpose. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good works. He knows what you're there for. He's already prepared a plan for you. All you have to do is be obedient. Demonstrating blatant sin while claiming to represent Christ. This is how the Bible answers the question that the lawyer put on. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality either to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about slandering among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life, for I am the Lord. God's asserting his sovereignty here. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly. In other words, if you have a problem with that specific person, don't gossip about it. Don't harbor it in your heart. Go to that specific person. Seems like Jesus said something about that later. 
so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor, what? As yourself, for I am the Lord. So who is my neighbor? The neighbor in ancient Israel received a special protection, consideration, and was due an extra degree of hospitality. It was something that was taken very serious. The law of God, which a lot of us New Testament Christians, we like to forget is there in the Bible, but a lot of it was put there for the sake of, of, of having lists of how do I love my neighbor? How do I protect the marginalized? How do I help demonstrate the love of God so that I can make a show before the nation of the difference God makes in me? Our neighbor's fellow community members locally, the person next door to us, are they the, fez, uh, the fellow Israelites in this case, or in our case, fellow Baptists, fellow United States of Americanists? Are they fellow Jews religiously, same sect, same ideology? What makes a person a neighbor? Is there something more? Paul writes it this way, All of you were baptized into Christ, have, been clothed, yourse have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, you're no longer just an American. You're no longer a French person. You're no longer a Caucasian. You're no longer a Southerner. You're no longer a, a Methodist, a Baptist, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Baptist, Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, American Baptist, Free Will Baptist. How many hyphenations are we going to put? You are clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Meaning that anyone made in the image of God is your neighbor. Anyone made in the image of God has that special consideration, has that special uh, need for hospitality, and you have the duty to be the neighbor to them. Anyone who is either presently a Christian or anybody who is, write this, a potential Christian. The person on the street that doesn't act right, the person that you know next door that doesn't, isn't the same type of person as you think they should, if you know that they're drowning in sin, if you know that they're hungering and thirsting after something greater, if you know that they've been eating the plastic of the world instead of the nourishment of the Holy Scriptures, they're still a potential brother or sister in Christ. Don't ignore them. Love them. Everyone, everyone made in the image of God is a being of eternal significance and divine worth to Him. Therefore, they are a being of eternal significance and divine worth to us. Which is why this is such an amazing sentence. When the Samaritan, when the outsider, when the marginalized himself saw this Israelite, he took pity on him. He didn't have to. He could have held the grudge. But he moved forward and he loved him. And that, my friends, is our weapon. That's how we make a difference. Paul writes to us, I beg you that when I come your way, he, he's, he's talking about a church that he's probably going to walk into in Corinth and start having to yell, scream, and throw down at people because of the way that they've been behaving towards each other. 
I beg you that when I come that I might not be, have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what are the targets? What are the, who, who, who are the strongholds that Paul is talking about? In the missions of the local church, when we're talking about the, 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 the excuse me, when we're talking about the ministry of compassion to those living in a fallen world, what are we targeting against? We're talking against the fact that we do live in a fallen world that we have to contend with the things of a fallen world. We have to contend with poverty. We have to contend with hunger. We have to contend with illness. There's also injustice everywhere, which includes persecution, oppression, prejudice, hatred, violence, things that we're called to preach against. And there's, of course, the attacks on God themselves, civil acceptance and toleration of sin, antagonism against the local church, disregard for the word of God, and spiritual apathy, enemies from without and enemies from within. These are our targets, and Paul tells us these are the strategies that we have to use to overcome them. The exercise of love through worship. The demonstration of love through missions. The proclamation of love through evangelism. Please get this down. The understanding of what real love is through discipleship. And the participation in the love of God through fellowship. Do those look familiar? These are the ministries of the local church. A church cannot claim to be a church without having all of these elements in place. It becomes a parachurch ministry. We worship together to exercise in God's love. We participate in missions together to demonstrate the love of God to others that don't understand it, that don't know it. We evangelize by proclaiming the difference that love makes in our lives. We disciple ourselves to make sure that the love that we demonstrate is the love that we're supposed to get, that agape love. Because believe me, as I've taught you before, there's more than one type of love. I hate to tell a lot of our other denominations, but not all love is love. There's over 12 different words that we lump together as love in the Bible, all of them talking about a completely different thing, but the, the love that Jesus is calling to us here, our supreme and only and greatest weapon, I might add, is a self-sacrificial, self-denying love that places others above the self. Do you see the pattern? Missions, which is what we're participating in this week, He's talking about responding to life in a fallen world with the love of God as our weapon, not human favor. We don't ask for anything in return, not even thanks. But it softens the, hearted, the stone-hearted. It ignites a curious spirit within the unbeliever. That's the incarnate work. That's you putting the Holy Spirit within you into action. You are the hands and feet of Christ. That's making he who is in heaven felt here on earth still that gives proof that the gospel has an impact, that it still works, that miracles are still happening because you are one. Love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, patience, self-control. 
All of that is not in human nature. It is only found in the believer who is in the possession of the Holy Spirit of God. You are a walking miracle. Put it on display. It offers a grace and a mercy that is not possible under the, under the fallen human nature. This was written by a guy who was an emperor of Rome, grandson of Constantine. He wanted to turn the empire away from being Christian again, back to paganism. He wanted to reopen Christian persecution. And he's writing this letter to a gentleman who, uh, who is a, a sun priest in Alexandria in Egypt. And he's talking about, he's bad-mouthing these Christians like his grandfather. And you can almost hear the sneers in his voice. He writes, These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also. They welcome them into their agape. They attract them as children are attracted to cakes. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, these hated Galileans devote themselves to the works of charity. And by a display of false compassion, they have established and given effect to their pretentious errors. See their love feasts and their tables spread for the indigent. Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our gods. I can't persecute them, they do too much. I can't feed them to the lions, they're feeding the poor. I can't throw them into prison. They're doing what our government can't. This is the difference the love of God makes. This is what conquered the Roman Empire. This is what created a religion that has survived 2,000 years and is still saving souls. Christianity has not lost its power. The Holy Spirit of God has not left his people. The word of God still can resonate within the hearts. We have to put it on display. That's how we fill the church again. But we fill it on top of a foundation firmly established on the love of God and the Holy Word of God. To do so would create a social club, and we don't want that. We want a church. We want the family of God. Paul continues on, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away the childish things. Before he was saved, he was a persecutor of Christians. He didn't care about Jesus. He wanted things his way. He wanted the religion he understood. He wanted Judaism the way that he wanted. And he worked thinking that instead of trying to win people with love, that he could just act as a terrorist and murder them. This is what he calls being childish, looking on the old nature. But now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three things remain. Say them with me. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Our first weapon. In truth, our only weapon. And by far our greatest weapon. Over anything that the world can ever throw at us. The love of God, the love of the people of God. Love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. This is the love of God he's describing. It is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, the agape love that he's describing 
doesn't see people as objects or as functions. You're just the secretary. You're just the worship leader. You're just the pastor. You're just the deacon. It sees people as people. It doesn't promote the self above others. It doesn't cause competitiveness or division. And above all, it doesn't hold a grudge. It offers forgiveness and unity. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. And some of the most blessed words in all of Scripture, in my opinion, love never fails. It unites and it strengthens the body. It always looks out for the best in others. It always works to promote the best in others. It places the needs of others before the self. And above all, in demonstrating the love of God and the Word of God to others, it offers a peace and a joy that endures. If you let Him, the Holy Spirit will hold you through just about anything. Through, and I, I, Let me reword that. He will hold you through anything. Now you have a choice. You can take your eyes off of what is eternal and place them on what is temporary and get fixated on it. You can let go of the peace that is yours by right. But the Holy Spirit is there waiting for you to carry you through it no matter what. This is the promise of God. And people see that, and it has an impact. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of the judgment. In this world, we are what? Like Jesus. The measuring rod of God's judgment is this. As we get older, as we mature in Christ, as every day passes, we, we must grow more and more like Him like a statue being sculpted over time, sanded down until it reaches just the right image. The more we practice love, the more we exercise in love, the more we demonstrate love, and the more we love each other, the more we look like Christ before God and before the world that we're calling to work in. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. But we, we love because what? He first loved us. Do not fear. Whatever we do, whatever mission field God calls you into be, whether it's with the yard sale, the fall festival, whether it is within just reaching out to people in Kroger's, don't fear because God takes responsibility for when they cross your paths. We've talked about that. Love gives strength through the promises of God. Trust God's vision and His faithfulness. How, have, how many times has God ever failed you? Can anybody raise their hand to say that God's ever failed them before? If God hasn't failed you before, He's not going to fail you now. Love others just as Christ loves them. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples promise tagged into that last great commandment. By this you will know, they will know that you are my disciples. The hallmark of a Christian, the weapon of a Christian, the way that we overcome empires, power structures, poverty, hunger, apathy, 
can be summed up in one simple word. Love. What we've been talking about this morning is examining the quality of the love that we demonstrate. Is that love identifiable to others as love? And are we willing to let go of the self-comfort long enough to make Christ known? And all God's people said. So Heavenly Father, as we draw the service of the Word to a close this morning, I ask that the seeds it plant will find fertile ground and that we will be compelled to let go of the things that would hinder us from your service. That we would be examples of your love and your mercy to others. That as the hours go on, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to be a showcase of the difference that you make before others. to not only feed the hungry with physical food, but be always to be ready when they ask us with love and with gentleness to let them know that you first loved us. Lord, if there are any in the sound of my voice this morning uh, that have yet to come to know you in that way, if there are any that... Lord, have been convicted and are looking for a new place to serve or have a special concern on their heart, a burden that is weighing them down, just in need of a special touch of the Master's hand, whatever the case may be, we open now to this time of invitation. Lord, and I ask you that you would impart upon the hearts of the people within the sound of my voice if there is something that they need relief from, the burden of sin, the burden of the situations of this world, just to know that your love is near, whatever the case may be, I ask that you would bring them forward now as we sing so that they may feel that touch and that their needs might be answered. And that, Lord, your will in their life and your love in their life may be known all the greater. Whatever the case may be, Lord, trouble the hearts of those that need you. And bring them forward as you will. For it is again in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time and if possible to join us in person to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you and God bless you.